It's 825, which is the number of anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced in state legislatures across the United States, the vast majority of which are specifically anti-trans, anti-non-binary. They are intended to strip people of their freedom of, of choice. They are intended to attack our, our youth and in many ways attack our sort of history and our heritage. People are, are attacking our, our future and our present right now, and that scares the hell out of me. My guest today is Brian Sims, an American politician and activist, a distinguished advocate for LGBT civil rights and public policy expert from Philadelphia. In 2011, Sims became the first openly gay candidate elected to the Pennsylvania General Assembly. Prior to entering politics, Sims was a distinguished lawyer and civil rights activist. He gained national attention for his efforts in fighting for LGBTQ plus equality and his vocal stance against discrimination. The son of two retired army lieutenant colonels, in 2000, Sims became one of the first football captains to have ever come out in the NCAA, the highest level of college football in the United States, after helping lead his team to the national championship game as their captain. Brian is a really great guy and I have to say this was such an enjoyable conversation. He's got a great sense of fun, a great sense of what is right and a great sense of following what he feels is his calling in life. Brian Sims, you are very welcome to The Number. How are you doing, sir? I'm very good. I'm very pleased to join you. So the last time I saw you, we were lounging by a beautiful pool in the hills of Hollywood in the sunshine and now it looks like you're in a cabin in the woods. I know, so fancy. I am. I'm in a cabin in the woods just outside of Manhattan uh, on a lake. My my partner and I, about a, about a week and a half after we saw you, we jumped in a car and drove cross country uh, back to the East Coast. And uh, and we bought a lake house out here and uh, just in time for him to fly to Hong Kong. I uh, left a couple of days ago. And so I'm here kind of pull, pulling our house together. So it's a lot of change for you because hold on, you're headed to Hong Kong in a couple of weeks yourself, right? I am. I'm gonna uh, in about six or seven weeks. I'm gonna head out there and and join him and do some work for Out Leadership, the company I work with, and uh, and spend a little time with him. How exciting! Okay, I want to hear everything, right? Because we only had a brief chat. I was kind of fascinated by your story. You've had a very interesting uh, trajectory. I think it's fair to say, in terms of you know your 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 football career, your growing up. Um, let's start with your family. So it, this is all about crunching the numbers, obviously, the numbers of your mm-hmm. life, the numbers that have been the most significant in your life and your journey to date. So when it comes to your family, what's a meaningful number for you? This is an easy one for me, and the number is 17. Uh, it's it's a higher number for my folks, that's for sure. That's the number of places that I have lived um, as an Army brat. My uh, my mom and dad are both retired lieutenant colonels in the Army. They uh, they met during the Vietnam War and, uh, and stayed active duty for most of their adult lives. And we lived everywhere, from Alaska to Kansas to from California to Virginia, and, um, and moved about every two to four years or so uh, as a kid. And then, of course, I moved for, for school and for school again and, and have moved a couple of times for work. But, yeah, 17 was that, that magic number. When I was growing up, it became really clear I was going to live in a lot of places. And some at some point or another, I realized it had been 17 different places. Were they all within the United States? They all were in the United States. The Army does this really interesting thing where and I don't know if they still do it. and I don't know if it was just officers like my folks. But at some point, you kind of have to do an overseas assignment. Now, they had done one early on in their careers. They were stationed in Germany, uh, in Würzburg, which is where my older brother was born. 
Um, but as I understand it, when we were living in Kansas, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, the, the largest federal prison in America is also an army base. When we were Yikes. living in Fort Leavenworth, my, uh, my parents got an overseas assignment and that included Alaska. And so, uh, in. Is Alaska overseas? You know, not if you ask me, but if you ask the army in the, I guess in the eighties at the time, they considered it. If you were going to, if you would accept a posting in Alaska, it was, it would, it would satisfy the need for an overseas assignment. And so my parents, uh, probably around 1984, 85, when I was a little kid moved to, uh, Eagle river, Alaska, just outside of Fort Richardson, the army base there. So that's kind of interesting because I've always felt that I'm a little bit of a nomad in terms of when I reference my upbringing. So I had I lived in five different family homes, which in terms of because we moved, but they were always within Dublin. And in comparison to my other friends, that was a lot because most of my friends grew up in the exact same house that they were born into. So I kind of always thought, oh, we're quite nomadic. But 17 is quite a lot. What does what does what do you learn or what does that teach you about life, do you think? You know, there are two big things I'd like to think it's taught me. One is my parents did this wonderful thing where every time we moved, for the most part, we got rid of a third of our stuff. They would sit (laughs) us down and say, go through it. If you haven't opened it, if you haven't played with it, if you haven't read it or looked at it in the last two years, you don't need to take it to the next place either. And so that ability to sort of call the rank, sort of look at your things critically in terms of not just utility, but sort of what they bring to your life is something that I try to do a lot of. Now I'm not going to turn this camera around because I have. I was I was looking at your shelves. Crap piled up. Yeah, (laughs) but uh, but yeah, I I have I get I've gotten very very good at at being able to look critically at the things around me and and sort of realize what what needs to come with me and what doesn't. And I I wish I could use that skill in far more places in my life. And what's Um, the most important thing that needs to come with you? What's the most important thing that needs to come with me? These days, it's my partner, Alex. Everything that's in this house has been, for the most part, in storage for almost a year. And it didn't matter to me a tenth as much as being around him did this last year. And that's hokey as hell, but it is so true. Um, I love that. I've always believed literally that sort of home is where you hang your hat. And I've been hanging my hat next to his for, for for about six months now. Well, you know, that's that's so interesting because, you know, my life, I guess, uh, kind of is similar to yours in some respects in the sense that I've lived in a lot of places subsequently as an adult. And that's the thing that it taught me. It's like I've never always had all my belongings, but I've always realized as long as I have a roof over my head, you know, some nice food in the fridge or and, and some some clothes. I don't need a lot of clothes, even though I love clothes. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, it it. It really is sort of um, wonderfully equalizing to travel a bunch and not be able to have all of the things around you that you own or that you like or that bring you comfort. And uh, you sort of you get good at triaging what your actual comfort level needs to be and what it is. And for me, I guess the other thing that's made me really good at is that I can pack a four bedroom home into the back of a hatchback car in about a half an hour. (laughs) I'm an expert mover. I hope I, my friends are going to are going to going to back me on this if any of them are, are watching. I am an expert mover, truly. I can I can pack it down with the best of them and and help I'm I'm good at helping other people move and I'm good at doing it myself. I don't care what anyone says, but that is a key life skill in my opinion. Um you <laughs> you you're a twin, Brian, right? So you grew up in a household that was four of you. What's it like having both your parents being colonels in the army? Like, was it a regimented household? 
you, you know, yes and no. Much more on the no side than the yes side. There's three boys and a girl in our house, and anybody that's got kids knows you just can't regiment it that much. Um, on the other flip side of it, though, my parents are, you know, they, they are, are natural leaders I, is one of the ways I would describe them. And maybe it's not even so natural. They've had a lot of training in their lives. But they are good about getting an outcome without having to sort of browbeat or without having to, you know, that awful sort of regimented thing that most people think of when they think my parents are military wasn't a part of my childhood at all. They were good about getting out of us what they needed and knew the different ways of doing that. And, and you know, we all learned how to do our own laundry and, and wash our own dishes and clean up after ourselves and clean up after whoever was around us. And I, I think those are really valuable life lessons. Okay, when it comes to your career now, it's this is where, for me, I'm, I have so many questions. Um, yeah. So we'll start with uh, the number, I guess, that changed everything for you in your career. Yeah, it's it's 253. And it will always so, be 253. So specific. Um, I love it. Yeah. You know, Darren, when I was uh, when I was in my early 30s, I, I'm a civil rights attorney by trade. And I was I was living in Philadelphia and working in Philadelphia as a gay man in a city that had phenomenal LGBTQ civil rights, or at least was was kind of working towards having phenomenal LGBTQ civil rights in a state that wasn't at all. And I got myself affiliated with, uh, with Equality Pennsylvania, the state's LGBTQ advocacy organization, and was doing everything I, I could to try to pass any non-discrimination laws in the state. And this this talking point really stuck with me for a number of years, and it is that no state that ever really passed any comprehensive relationship recognition laws while I was trying to do this did it without first having an out legislator, and we did not and had not. In fact, we I didn't know this, but we were the second largest state in the country that had never elected anybody openly LGBT. And so I tried for a bunch of years to do it. There were some fantastic candidates in Pennsylvania that I, I worked to try to get elected and, and a couple of them came very maddeningly close and didn't. And um, I was sitting in my office one day and I was listening to a news report of my own local elected official um, um, who said something that I considered to be very anti-woman, very anti-trans, and she was a liberal woman. And um, I went and met with her and I told her I was going to run against her. And um, she told me to go fuck myself. And it, it, it made me like her more. Of course it did. Right? I mean, she was, she was kind of notoriously mean. And a mean liberal is a hard thing, right? She's ballsy. I, she's got balls. I like it. She was just, uh, maybe balls isn't what she needed. She had, she had guts. She had, a, she had everything but balls. Balls are weak in politics. <laughs> she, she was just tough as nails. And, and you know, I... I had known her for years and I had worked with her. I at least had tried to. And I went and told her and I had rehearsed it. I told her I was going to run the largest, cleanest, healthiest race in the history of my district. And I was going to beat her because of it. She told me to go fuck myself again. And I, I left. I spent the next 10 months doing exactly what I told her I was going to do. And in the end, in 2011, um, I was elected by 253 votes. And it changed the trajectory of my entire life. And had you always desired to get into politics or wh when did that start? Um, 11 months before that. That's a little too trite. Maybe a year before that. No, mm. is the quick answer. In part because it, it was not something that really avails itself of army brats. Um, one of the prevailing rules, if you will, of politics is that people run in places where they've lived. 
and as an army brat, I was from a little bit of everywhere and, and decidedly not a Philadelphian or not from Philadelphia. Um, Pennsylvania is notoriously one of those states where very few people ever leave it. And so the vast majority of elected officials are second and third generation. Um, Philly hadn't elected somebody that wasn't born there or educated there in 40 years when I was finally elected. And so it just didn't seem like something that could be on my radar. So it never was. Uh, civil rights um, always was, but not politics. What do you think it was about you that got it over the line? What, what, what do you think was your, your ticket to success in that race? Uh, it was a couple of things. Um, one is that I had put the work in. I had spent the almost 10 years prior doing every single thing I could do as an attorney, as an LGBTQ advocate in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia to fight for the things that I promised people I was going to fight for in the legislature. I, I didn't have to make up an agenda. I had an agenda and I had a history of, of working towards accomplishing that agenda. Um, the other thing is that because I was from everywhere, I asked people everywhere for support and and largely received it. I you know, I, I got donations and from all fifty states in the United States that, that year. And um and it, it was necessary. You know, I, I outraised an a twenty eight year incumbent, probably five to one, and still only won by two hundred and fifty three votes. How important is that correlation between what you fundraise, that amount, and your success? Yeah. You know, yeah, it is uh, in a lot of places, the two leading indicators of who will uh, win on a ballot are the person that is first on the ballot or the person that raised the most money. Um, uh, neither of those things should determine whether or not a person is elected. Now, I, I can make people feel better about the money in politics, but we should all feel bad about it overall. And that is because there's far too much money in politics from nefarious places and places that should not be allowed to engage in politicking, but they do. And it's almost impossible for sort of regular people to keep up with the amount of money that pumps into our politics from from now businesses and from from other places that, again, I don't think should be involved in politics. But at least on a local level, like races like mine at a statewide level, all the way up to about Congress, the money that people donate is going to get the word out. You know, mm-hmm. candidacies are, are a really awful experience sometimes. They can be really gratuitous and they can feel you can feel really overexposed. But that money, especially, you know, especially, like I said, in local races is going to make sure that people know who you as a candidate are. That means it's going to mailings. It's going to little, those little things that hang on your doors or get you know shoved under your, your mat. Uh, it's going to sometimes ads and commercials, which are very, very expensive, again, because you're competing against industries. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it's not generally doing is going to make people rich. Uh, I think that's one of the big fears that people have of donating to politics is that you're donating to sort of fat cats. Now, at the big media level, that is maybe a little truer, but it wasn't true in any race I was ever in. Every dollar I, I saw raised really, for me, was was put back into a campaign in a way that I, I thought would have a real return, not to make anybody rich. And I think a, a nice segue of that is when I ask you, what's the number that you'd like to forget? Um, when I was running for a couple of years ago, I ran for lieutenant governor. Um, and uh, it was a race that I I had put a lot of time, years and years of time and energy into it and um, was a front runner in that race. Uh, I had, had raised again from all 50 states in the country within about a, 100 days of launching that race. And I would go on to raise a real unprecedented amount of, of money, more than anybody had ever raised for lieutenant governor's primary, to my knowledge, anywhere in the country. Um, but the person that was running for, for the Democratic ticket of governor did not want me as a running mate. 
and uh, chose somebody, even though the, the constitution of our state says that the, the primary election is the time where the people, the voters of the state decide what the ticket is. Um, months, months, months before the primary, the, the Democratic, uh, what would go on to become the Democratic nominee, chose a candidate to run alongside him, who just unfortunately did not put the same amount of work into that that election. And so as the, the months drew on towards the end, um, they ended up putting a truly unprecedented amount of money onto that candidate, millions of dollars on that candidate. And, you know, that was that was something I was not able to keep up with. Um, so I lost. Now, listen, you mentioned uh, you mentioned him earlier on, the lovely Alex. When it comes to love, what's your number? 3,000. And it's a number that actually has been in my life a lot, but it is especially true with Alex. He and I, uh, we met uh, a little over two years ago. We met in Provincetown, Massachusetts, my one of my favorite places in the whole world. And um, I, I was late getting up there um, in the day. I was supposed to be up much earlier in the day. And so when I arrived after about eight hours of driving, I had to go straight to the boat slip. I had to go to high tea. To oh, you had to go. You had, had to, to go. go. Okay. Well, no, okay. I really did. Uh, my, one of my best friends in the world lives up there, Julian Sear. He's the Senator for the whole Cape. And, uh, I, he was already there at tea. And so I had to meet him to get into his place. And I found him, uh, briefly in the crowd and he, he left to go get me a drink. And in the minutes while I was standing there alone, the whole crowd at tea just split down the middle. And there was this really handsome guy at the far end of this, like, gauntlet and uh you know i didn't know if he was checking me out i was definitely checking him out and i kind of did that thing where i looked around and like you know shifted my body weight a little bit and, <laughs> and eyed him up and then the crowd closed up and and i thought that was the end of it and about about an hour and a half later i was going to leave and and he came up and he stopped me and my friends and said hello and my friends like golf clapped him for for saying hello and we brought him with us to dinner and and he and I have been dating ever since, but about a month after that all happened, he moved to Berkeley, California from Boston to start graduate school, 3,000 miles away from Philadelphia. And for the first year and a half of our relationship, we were 3,000 miles apart. Oh my God. And how did you, like, how did you navigate that? And I don't mean that geographically, obviously, yeah. but I mean, did you, cause that's very early days, but some, you knew, right? What, what was it then? I did know. Yeah. Um, one is that part of it I was running for that lieutenant governor's race we were talking about earlier that I lost. I was doing that. And I was on the road full time all the time, about a thousand miles a week on the road. And uh, he would fly out for a week at a time and, you know, about once a month or so and be with me on the on the, the campaign trail, which was a wild experience, I'm sure, for him. And I had to be out in California a couple of times during the election for fundraising. And so he would he would come join me for that. And you know, uh, there, he's a little younger than I am, and he was a lot more into using FaceTime than I was at first. But it was just one of those things where we we made it work. You know, I I, I uh, six months into dating him, I could tell that we had something really special. A year into dating him, I knew I was completely completely in love with him. And uh, it took another six months or so before we even could live together. And that was this last summer. Oh my God! What a what a love story. And you know what? It gives so much hope, let me tell you, because as uh, you know, obviously, as anyone who has been single recently or dated recently, it's it's it can be tough. I was actually talking to a friend of mine last night who was telling me that her girlfriend had been seeing this guy. They were getting on great. They, you know, three weeks had passed. They were making plans. They were both soccer fans. 
and there was a, a soccer match that was going to be on early in the morning because it was in the UK. They'd arranged that they were going to go watch the match, but they, she was going to prepare brunch, have mimosas, do the whole thing. The next day, the time that he was meant to arrive came and went. There was no sign of him. Half an hour passed, no sign of him. So she starts messaging him, no sign of him. 3 p.m. that day, she's like, okay. She sends him a message going, if, you, if you're not into this, that's fine. But just let me know because I kind of think that, you know, I'm worried something might have happened. She never heard from the guy again. He totally ghosted her. That's technology allowing bad people to be even worse. Yeah. Oh, God. Makes me makes me feel ill just thinking about it. And you said at the beginning of that answer, 3000 is a number that comes up for you, uh, has come up for you a lot. What? How else has it come up? So my mom is from Central California as well. And so my family has often sort of hugged the coasts of the United States. And so it's been a regular thing where we've been 3,000 miles apart. I uh, Every <laughs> summer of college, I lived in California while my parents were in the Philadelphia suburbs. And um, I, it's just been a, it's been one of those things where we're rarely a thousand miles apart. We're often 3000 miles apart. In terms of ages, I mean, some people get hung up in ages, some people don't, but for you, what's been the kind of most significant age for you and why? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I am not somebody that gets hung up on age. I'm 44 years old. I'll be 45, uh, next month. And uh, I've never felt better. And I, you know, hopefully I last another wonderful 45 years. Um, but my 33rd birthday happened right about the time that I was elected to office. And uh, it was it was a, just a, a really transformative time in my life. I, uh, A, I started to grow a beard. Um, so, so first and, first and foremost. Um, you know, Priorities. My, my beard happened. Um, I, I, it was when I was transitioning from being an attorney to being an advocate and being an activist and, and, and taking the work that I had done to, to urge lawmakers to pass laws to become somebody that was trying to do it myself. Um, and it was sort of a time period when I, I sort of stepped off the income scale. I, as an attorney, I wasn't making good money, but I, you know, make consistent money. And as a legislator, just don't. And that's a part of the job. And I knew that I was going to spend however long, you know, sort of making an income that would require me to to have, you know, roommates and uh, that kind of a thing. And um, it was just a very, very, very transformative year in my life. You know, a lot of people struggle with the courage to do something like that, especially, you know, you spent years in law school, you've, you've you know, you've, you've, it's grist for the mill. And then, you step off knowing that there's a bit of a cliff when it comes to income, lifestyle, and so on. What, what's, you know, where do you get that courage from or what do you attribute that to? Oh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't think it was courage first and foremost. Uh, I think it was much more out of necessity. Uh, I think uh, the best high minded version of my story is that it is courageous, but the truth is it was just, it was necessity. I, um, I spent a long time trying to find and fund and train other people to run for office because I thought other people would be more viable than I was um, for lots of different reasons. And when it finally happened, it wasn't the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. It was the sort of mechanics of equality and what needed to happen in order to put in motion uh, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of things that that uh, were required to accomplish a goal that I have. And that was that was equality. And, you know, I am. I, um, I teach people often about what privilege means in the United States because everybody has some degree of privilege and a lot of us have much more privilege than, than we're even comfortable with. And the only thing I know to do with that privilege is to use it to break down the systems that perpetuate it. 
And so, you know, I, I was, I feel like, you know, everybody in our legislature that was doing things that I opposed looked just like me. And so mm-hmm. it required me to get up and say, hey, this is racist and this is sexist and this is homophobic and transphobic. Um, and, and that was the, what I built my career doing. I, even though you don't, you might not look at it this way or through this lens, I still think that is incredibly courageous. Um, and you're probably too humble to say it. When it comes to kind of pivot points in your life, what's the number that changed everything for you? There's a silly number and that's number one. Okay. Um, I only have one kidney. And uh, it's because a couple years ago, I donated my other kidney to a neighbor that was dying. And um, I I did not know until that moment that uh, an adult could live very comfortably and easily with one kidney. It has virtually no impact on my life. Um, but as someone who's about to turn 45 years old, I can very comfortably say that if you're considering donating an organ or donating a kidney, at least, uh, to somebody else, that there are far too many people in this country that need one. And, uh, and you only need one. And, uh, and so I live every day with one kidney. I'm actually, I've been hit with emotion there. I don't know why. That's so beautiful. Yeah, it, uh, it was a very, not easy physically, and, but a very mm. easy thing to do emotionally and intellectually. I, I, uh, when the opportunity availed itself, uh, I remember telling a couple people that were close to my life that were very nervous for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I called my mom and dad and said, hey, there's this guy, he lives nearby, and he's going to die without a kidney, and I'm a perfect match, a truly perfect match, um, and I'm going to do it. My, my parents were, were so excited, and they, were very, they said, great, when can we be there? What can we do? Wow. And uh, I knew in that moment why it was such an easy decision for me to make. And it was because of the, my parents had maybe prepped me for a decision like that my whole life. That's kind of incredible. And are you still in touch with the person? The, the oh, person? Yeah. 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 You know, uh, when I, when it was all going on, his name is Alan. When it was all going on, Alan was so sick that he wasn't himself. Um, glimpses of himself for sure. The best parts of himself were still there, but he was so sick that he wasn't there. He has a husband. His husband, John, makes up for in personality what Alan at the time was lacking in personality. And um, they have stayed friendly with my parents. But, you know, it wasn't long after the, maybe a year after the surgery, I was, uh, I was walking through Philadelphia. I was standing outside of one of my favorite gay bars, kind of a restaurant. And I, I heard somebody clear his throat and say my name. And I turned around and there was Alan sitting with John outside this cafe having lunch for probably the first time that they'd been able to do something like that in years and years and years because he was going to die. And how does that um, make you, how does that make you feel in that moment? Oh, we cried our eyes out. And I sat down and buried myself in some Mai Tais and we told fun stories and talked about what, you know, what being out and about was like. And, you know, it took a long time for him to get that sick and it took a long time for him to get healthy, but that was the, the turning point. And so it's worth reflecting on. That's pretty magical. You, you did mention another number, though, when you were first coming out. Uh, you, so obviously you were, you were a, a college football captain, is that right? I was a college football captain. And it, it sounds so hokey to say that 72 is a number that that had a real big impact on me. And it was my college football number. Um, I, I was a big, big kid. I'm, I'm physically almost the same size I was when I was about 14 years old. I was a huge 14 year old. Jesus Christ. 
right? Yeah, crap. I wouldn't have messed with me, but I was so gay and so new everywhere I went that, you know, I was probably an easy target. And so I, I never thought I was going to be a college athlete. I, my twin brother is, is a multi-sport athlete. My older brother was a phenomenal athlete in, in high school. And uh, so it just wasn't on the radar for me. I was, a, I was a nerd and I liked that space. It was something I was very comfortable in and it allowed me to sort of avoid people and, and kind of do my own thing. And then I moved to a place where at this size, at 14 years old, they make you a football player, whether you wanted to be one or not. And, um, and it just kept getting better and better and better for me. I, I played on winning teams and all of that was really fantastic. But my college teammates and my high school teammates many of whom are still my best friends today, are some of the, the biggest transformation stories of my life. Coming out to all of them, coming out to a college football team. You know, I... I, uh, I how, did they re- how did they react to that? Because obviously, you know, you were breaking were ground. Yeah, they were great. I mean, this is 24 years ago. This is uh, 22 years ago. This is 2000. My teammates in college uh, were very nervous that over the years they might have said or dumb, done things that made me secretly not like them or hate them even. And that wasn't the case. My, my buddies, my teammates were very good people. And, and I wasn't that type of person in the closet that was, you know, that, that was, that would have accepted homophobia or transphobia around me. I didn't accept racism or sexism. And, and so largely that was the language they kind of used back to me, but there were a lot of tears, um, usually theirs. A lot of my teammates really cried it out with me and that was wonderful. But mostly they just wanted to make sure that I knew that, that I was cared for and that, I, and that I, they wanted to make sure I felt respected and protected. When it comes to numbers that you check regularly, what is, what is the most important one for you? <laughs> There's one and, and everybody in my life knows that I check it. I check the sunrise and the sunset everywhere I'm at because I'm always on the road right just in the last two weeks I've been in seven states maybe more um and it's those the one thing that helps bring me consistency is knowing knowing I'm a big schedule person I live and die by my calendar but knowing when the sunrise and knowing when the sunset happens really helps me gauge the rest of the day I like that I like that okay a couple of quick fire questions for you how much is in your wallet right now you know, I had to check this, and I do. I have a crisp old 20 that has been wedged behind a credit card that I don't use for the better part of a better part of a couple of years. Favorite time of day? I I love a, that that late summer, early fall, long, slow, lazy, sunny afternoon. I love it. How many coffees a day do you have, and what's your order? <laughs> I probably have two. So I don't, I don't have a bad day. Maybe I'll have three. I, I didn't start drinking coffee until just a couple of years ago. And so I have an espresso machine. So I like those little like super whipped up frothy little espressos, Dovios. But I also love me like a milkshake coffee. You give me coconut <laughs> foam and pistachio this and hazelnut whatever. And and I like a Lipitor afterward. And I'll, I'll drink that. You're all in. What's your guilty pleasure? What's your guilty pleasure? Um, my guilty pleasure is an easy one. It's an evening joint with my best friends. I've got a, a great group of friends, and uh, they've all got the best stories to tell. They all have very exciting, interesting days, and a lazy joint in the afternoon, maybe on that perfect sunny day that I was talking about. What's the number that strikes the fear of God in you? 
Fear of God, unfortunately, there's a lot of that lately, and it's it's 825, which by I think by best accounts right now is the number of anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced in state legislatures across the United States. Every single state in the United States has anti-LGBTQ bills now have been introduced in them. Um, the vast majority of which are specifically anti-trans, anti-non-binary. They are intended to strip people of their freedom of, of choice. They are intended to, uh, about their own bodies. They're intended to strip people of their, their freedom um, to make decisions about their own health care. They are intended to attack our, our youth and in many ways attack our sort of history and our heritage. People are, are attacking our, our future and our present right now. And that scares the hell out of me. You know, it's. I watched a documentary which I've seen before a couple of times. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called The Queen of Ireland, and it's yeah. on. Um, it's on Amazon Prime. I really recommend that you watch it. But it's about a drag queen, very the most famous drag queen in Ireland. Her name is Panty Bliss, um, of and she she of course, of course, right. And Panty, through a, a kind of longer story, which I won't come into, uh, go into, became an active, an accidental activist, and part of that was her involvement in the marriage equality referendum, which took place in May 2015 in Ireland, when Ireland became the first country in the world to put the question of marriage equality to a public vote. Terrifying. As an openly gay man living in that country at that moment, waiting on that result was terrifying because you were sitting there going, okay, if this is, if this is a no, basically the people of my country are telling me that I'm not an equal citizen, that they don't value who I am that I am not an equal person like every other straight person in this country. And I remember thinking at the time, it's like, I, I won't be able to live here if that's the case. Um, thankfully, it wasn't the case. Overwhelming majority voted yes, yes to marriage equality. So Ireland, as a very small, traditional Catholic uh, conservative country, traditionally speaking, has just done this massive quantum leap into equality, into, you know, being one of the best places in the world to to live and be gay. Our our prime minister, or Taoiseach, as we call him, is an openly gay man. And then I see all these regressive steps, you know, and it's not just in Russia. It's it's here. It's in, you know, the, the most free country in the world, supposedly. What's going on? Um, you know, some of this, uh, I still believe, is the an attempt by very powerful people and very powerful industries to, to sort of create a, a chaos instead of a status quo, maybe a chaos quo, to kind of keep us in a perpetual state of chaos, fighting over social justice issues that are core to a lot of people's beliefs. The other part of this, I think, is that we are doing a significantly better job in the United States of driving out this this sort of heinous, vitriolic, anti-everybody sort of racism that in many ways defined our politics. There's not a single person of color in the United States that doesn't deal daily with racism because our politicians wouldn't deal directly with racism when they had the opportunity to do it. The same is true of sexism. We've had two waves of women's rights in in the United States because of it. And now it's happening again with LGBTQ equality. You know, I'm one of the people that believes that marriage equality is is very deeply on the chopping block right now in the United States, and I, I'm that I horrifies that, me. That horrifies me, right? Mm. Um, you know, some of this is is Citizens United. The this this Supreme Court, I believe, wrongly decided that that industry could somehow play a significantly more more active role in politics, like individuals, which they are not, and they should not be playing. And they've allowed 
billions of dollars to be pumped into our politics in a way to create chaos and to create division. The vast mm-hmm. majority of people in America truly didn't care much about marriage equality. Those that did care about it supported it. And you know what marriage equality did to everybody else's marriages in the United States? Fucking nothing. Yeah, exactly. Nothing. It's, right? it's like, you and, know, the let live and let live, right? I mean, that's the, the basic tenant. Well, you'd like to think. I, mm-hmm. There is, um, you know, my politics are inclusive. My politics tell me not just that what's good for me is good for other people, that there are lots of things that are good for other people that might not be good for me, but certainly that have nothing to do with me. And that's okay. This, this, the selfishness, the myopicness of people who th- myopicness of people who think that all things are about them, revolve around them, or deserve their attention, their decision making, or their approval, is one of the the things that's broken right now in American politics. And it's something that you're doing now on a day to day basis, right? When you're in your your current role, tell them, tell me yeah. just a little bit about that, please. Yeah, I work for a company called Out Leadership. Uh, it's been around for over a dozen years, and Out Leadership works directly with many of the world's largest companies to help them find their voice in advancing LGBTQ equality, whether it's supporting their own employees, supporting being out within an industry, whether it's training the, the sort of their next leaders about equality and on equality or having board members that are LGBTQ. We understand that, that business can be a mechanism for driving equality, especially in a country like ours where far too many opponents of equality point to business and industry as some degree of a standard well business and industry support equality and and my job is to get them to do it louder and faster Mm -hmm. okay brian what's the best piece of advice you've ever received it's maybe not a piece of advice i've ever received but it's a at the uh the u.s military academy at west point new york there used to be a sign that hung over the door of the football locker room and uh players would hit it on the way out when they were going out and it says i lay me down to bleed a while and i will rise again to fight and I think about that a lot. I don't. I never saw it in person. I read about it in a book. Um, but I, I tend to think about it. I, you know, like everybody else, I get beaten down a lot. I get beaten down pretty hard. The news can be rough. Friendships can be rough. You know, maintaining family and relationships, all that's hard. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot. I lay me down to bleed a while, but I will rise again to fight. Resilience. I love it. It's, if you ask me, it's one of the most important um traits that anyone can have in life to survive it uh, and very final question for you sir and i won't keep you much longer um what's the number one lesson that took you the longest to learn um i've been an advocate or an activist my whole life i i i have tried to take all of the lessons of my upbringing and all the, the neat places i've gotten to go and all the really fascinating people um, that I've gotten to interact with and and utilize those lessons and bring them kind of to the forefront when I'm interacting with other people. And um, it was a friend of mine who ran for office in Philadelphia years ago, um, uh, a Latinx scientist who did not win, um, who, who, who very succinctly said to me, don't pretend to give a voice to the voiceless. Give them a microphone. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has changed how I advocate in in almost every single way. And um, it's uh, a sentiment that I hope to pass on to others. I love it. Well, Brian Sims, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you're one of the good guys. Appreciate it. Keep up the good fight. And, um, right back at you. I will keep watching with wonder at everything that you do. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. 
What an interesting man and what an interesting career. Brian, thank you so much for your time. It was actually only after we ended our conversation that Brian told me, in fact, last night was his very first night in his new home and he hadn't even unpacked. So I really do appreciate your time, Brian. If you'd like to keep up with Brian and his fascinating work, you can follow him on Instagram at BrianSimsPA. Now, if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please share your thoughts by leaving a review and a star rating. It really does help the podcast grow and for other people to find us. And if you'd like to receive weekly installments of the number straight to your phone, hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's it from me. Take care.